Well, I'm really excited today to be talking to Tiago Forte because he has written a very interesting book, Building a Second Brain, which is all about how do you take smart notes? How do you organize all the information in your life? How do you think better with that? And I think this is a very useful topic. This is a conversation I've really wanted to have because my audience often asks me, you know, like, how should I take notes and how should I do that? But I don't really see myself as much of an expert on that. I feel like I struggle often with note-taking tools and systems. So I'm very happy to be having this conversation even for my own selfish benefit with Tiago right now. So maybe you can just kick things off. Just tell us what what is the idea behind building a second brain and, and why do you think it's important for people? Yeah, absolutely. I'm super happy to be here, Scott. Uh, I've watched your your uh, your trajectory over the past few years, and we actually share a a publisher who was at mm-hmm. she, she published you when she was at her previous you know company. Um, yeah. But I remember calling you for a reference, and you've been a, a guy. <laughs> yeah. so thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I was really on the ground floor of of this book here because uh, we both worked with Stephanie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely all sorts of connections between our work. I mean, yeah. the one you mentioned. I for years had the same question. You know, you you take a, as a as a professional learner, you know, mm-hmm. a lifelong learner, someone who loves reading books and taking classes and listening to podcasts and all that stuff. I always noticed, you know, the teacher, the instructor, the expert always always says these little lines like, "Oh, take note of that. Oh, write this down. Oh, note this down and reflect on it later." Or keep a list or collect this kind of information. And every time they would say that, my ears would perk up and I would just say, I would just think, say what? Like, that's the part I need help with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that taking of notes and revisiting those notes in a systematic way was just this, this big hole in my, in my process to learning anything. Uh, and I never found a satisfactory solution. That's why I had to create one. It's kind of just this assumption that people know how to take notes. And I think largely we don't. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll talk from my own experience then. So I have not in the past been the best note taker. Like, I mean, I've been reasonably good when it's like a class and there's an exam at the end. And, you know, so, you know, you have some sort of constraint. Okay. I got to write what was covered in the lecture and review it and that kind of thing. But I mean, and I think this is really what your book shines for is that in, in real life, there's no exam, right? You're just potentially any information could apply at any other point in time in the future. And if you're like me, you consume a lot of information. You're reading all sorts of interesting stuff. I mean, we're both writers. So the the kind of potential connections of where this might be useful is is never super, super organized. You know, you're, you're always looking for those. Oh, that's an interesting story or that's an interesting idea. And you're linking it together. And so I'll give you my process. So what I would typically do is I'd be like, you know what? I need to be more organized about this. So I'm going to start taking notes and I'll get like Evernote and I'll get the browser plug in and I'll just start clipping things. Clip, 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 clip. And then all of a sudden I have a bajillion things stored in my Evernote and it's just, I I am actually scared to look at it. Like I don't want to open it because there's just too much stuff. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not looking at these notes ever again. I've just yeah. been clipping things and sending them to the void. So you talk about this in the book. And so I, I really want, you know, your expert opinion here. What am I doing wrong? And for anyone else who can relate to my experience where you've tried to do note taking and it's just been sending things into the void, what are we doing wrong and, and how, how can we do it better? Yeah, you know, I actually wouldn't say that that's necessarily wrong. I would just say it's a phase. You know, it's a phase that I think is actually helpful to go through. We, I think the the basic kind of problem is for all of human history, we lived in an environment of information scarcity. 
So all of our mindsets and habits and our approaches are designed for scarcity, right? Like you hear a negative insight. Oh, I gotta, I gotta keep that because it's going to go up in smoke. But suddenly just in the past, like 0.0001% of human history, we've switched all of a sudden to an environment, environment of total abundance, hyperabundance, right? And so all of those instincts are, are incorrect and actually lead us, you know, astray. Um, and so I'd say it's good even to go through, I call it the hoarding phase, Mm. right go through go through a hoarding phase go through a phase where you're keeping every single quote you come across go through a phase where you're you know web clipping every website that might be useful but then when you reach that point that you mentioned that you've reached right where you 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 go to the other side of the coin your future self goes back to all this stuff you've collected and realizes what i think is the important realization to have which is that when you collect everything you might as well collect nothing Right. When you try to save all the knowledge, you end up not having any knowledge that's accessible. If you save everything, you end up just creating a huge amount of work for your future self to organize, distill, review, boil down that to its essence. Mm -hmm. So what I encourage people to think of is think about like the signal in the noise. There's always this comes from like information theory, right? There's always noise, the noise of the Internet, the noise of social media, the noise of even reading a book. There's a lot of filler. What is the, the signal? How can you distill and extract just the main point, the main takeaway, the main nugget from all that noise? And often what that leads to, that whole cycle of realization is taking far fewer notes in the first place. Mm. So you come up with this system uh, and, and you call it, uh, I don't know whether I should say code or C-O-D-E. I don't know what you've been using in your head to refer yeah, code, to. Yeah, code, code. Code. Um, and so tell us a little bit about this, because I think this kind of captures, uh, in a nutshell, the four phases that you talk about in in taking proper notes. And, and this sort of links to what we were just talking about, that, you know, you can get very focused on the collecting, but maybe not so much on the distilling or the expressing. So maybe in your own words, can tell me a little bit about uh, code and, and how it's helped other people take better notes. Yeah, you know, code is really my framework for the creative process. <clears throat> and it's it's funny and almost embarrassing how long it took me to arrive at that, right? Like the simplest <laughs> frameworks are the ones that take you the longest yeah, to, yeah. to find. <laughs> yeah. um, and I remember when like, I, was, I was sketching, you know, on my notepad here, the different steps that I kept observing in my students. I was like, is it collect? No, it's more like capturing. And, and then, oh, mm -hmm. it's organizing. And then I was like, is it refining or reviewing? No, I think it's distilling. And before I even knew what I was doing, code jumped out at me. Yeah. It was, it was literally COD and I was like, wow, this has just kind of emerged from, you know, a decade of experience. Um, and what I'm really trying to do is just standardize the creative process. And for some people that sounds, you know, kind of sacrilegious, it sounds <laughs> offensive. It sounds like I'm, you know, oversimplifying creativity and I am, but I found for myself, I just can't sit down every day at a blank, anything, a blank desk, a blank screen, a blank canvas, and just invent how I'm going to approach my work that day. I need a process. I need a system. Uh, and what code does is it gives me steps, right? I can basically look at any project I'm working on and I can ask, is it time to capture more information related to this project, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just, you just don't have enough to work with. You don't have enough raw yeah. material. You just need more info. Is it time to organize the info I already have, right? Mm -hmm. Once I have 5, 10, 20 notes, it's pretty clear. I have something. I need to organize it. Is it time to distill the information that I've organized, boil it down to the main takeaways, or have I done all this 
preliminary steps and is it time to just express myself? Is it time to just yeah. express my own point of view? It gives me like a checklist to run through every time I sit down to, to work. Well, so so this brings me to my next question because you know, I, I've done some interviews and, and one of the ones that the questions that I would sometimes get, which I, you know, I, I wasn't always a huge fan of, which is the sort of like the, how did you write this book uh, question? Cause it sort of implies there's maybe not that much to say about the content of the book. You get too much into the, how did you write the book? But I think it's worth asking in your case, because your book is about organizing and researching for the creative process. And having gone through that journey myself, I was very aware of this kind of finished product of like, oh yeah, there was a lot of little pieces that were assembled. Like Tiago did a good job of like pulling together, you know, some stories, some sides, some things like this. I know that there was the 90% below the iceberg basically mm -hmm. of the thinking for what actually yeah. manifested in the book here. So tell me a little bit about your process um, of how you went about writing the book. And in particular, how did your note-taking system fit into the research and development to like what we see today if you're if you have a copy of the book if you're reading it what is it what is it going through yeah yeah this is this is this is essential right i should write a post on some time it'll be the most meta thing ever you know how i use my <laughs> second brain to write yeah. a book about second brains <laughs> and then you're gonna write an article about how you wrote that article there you go and you just <laughs> infinite infinite yeah, yeah infinite regress yeah I have my whole content pipeline planned out for years yeah. in advance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, um, there's so many principles I used. In fact, it, it was it was almost funny at some points. I would get stuck, mm -hmm. you know, like you do when you take on any big creative project. And then as I'm looking at my notes and my content, I would be like, oh, wait, what if I used my own advice? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe that would maybe. work. Yeah. Um, and so let's see a few things that come to mind. Um, one is chunking. Mm -hmm. I mean, chunking was so important, I think. And this is what, something I talk about in the book. People really underestimate how much what they think is a single task is really a project. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I see people all the time. You know, I love to look over their shoulders at their to do list. People will write things, you know, people will put, will put on their to do list, like write the manuscript for my book. Like on their to-do list, as if they're just going to sit down and in 15 minutes, just do that, right? Yeah. Um, even something like, you know, buying new headphones. I don't know about you, but for me, buying new <laughs> headphones is like a research project, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I have to research all these things. And so what I invite people to do is look at your to-do list. If there's anything that is stuck that you just can't seem to get started, you can't seem to make progress on, it's very likely that thing is not a task, it's a project. And once you realize it's a project, you have to step back and create some structure right? You have to do what's what's sometimes called meta work, right? You have to think about, okay, what are the steps? What is the goal I'm trying to achieve? What are the constraints? What are some milestones I'm going to reach along the way? And I think sometimes people are embarrassed to do that for just one of their personal projects. It feels like mm -hmm. over overdoing it. Uh, and I don't think so. So like for writing my book, you might think that's a project. It's not. It's actually like 20 to 30 separate projects, right? <laughs> you know this, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, all the little pieces, you know, in the beginning, yeah. the whole project was just find an agent. That was a yeah. whole thing within itself. Conversations mm -hmm. to have, referrals to get, interviews yeah. to do, requirements to write down, all these things. Once that little tiny mini project was done, it was find an editor just to work with me on the proposal. Right. And again, that was a two, three month long project, all these little details yeah. to track. And so step by step, I really just asked myself, what is the tiniest chunk I can bite off? 
that is manageable and not overwhelming that I can have some sort of win or reach some sort of milestone that is then the trigger for the next stage. Um, Mm -hmm. And at this point with the book coming out, you know, in about a month, I've probably done, like I said, 15 or 20 separate projects and I still have five or 10 left. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I can tell you for, for, for sure that the person who thinks the book is done once they finish writing it, it's a, (laughs) it it goes on, it goes on. Um, No, that's great. And I mean, I think there is an, there's an idea. I I don't want to read too much into you. So you can tell me whether I'm, I'm, reading between the lines incorrectly here, but, but you see in a lot of the kind of space of advice that we sit in, I kind of, you know, just do it. Don't do any planning. Don't do any preparation, you know, take action, you know, quit thinking about it. There is a kind of reflexive, um, gut instinct that if, you know, if you're, if you're sitting around making notes or doing things like this, you're doing something wrong. And I, I kind of reject that advice in part because of the very reason you just talked about that when you put write book on your to-do list, there's no task there. That's not actually a task. That is a million tasks. And it's, it's the very complexity that we deal with when we're doing difficult things that often is what overwhelms us. And I also think this is something, you know, also worth stating that a project like you're talking about writing a book has many, many sort of moving parts. Let's, let's put it that way that, you know, I'm a big fan of, of James Clear. He wrote that forward for my, my book and, and I, I really like habits and, and doing all that kind of thing. But I also know that in, in the sort of the wake of that, a lot of people kind of got the idea that just doing something 15 minutes a day and it's the exact same thing was how you complicate, how you do complicated work. And I think, you know, what you just said about, well, actually writing a book is like 30 projects and each of those projects is like 30 tasks and each of them, you know, a lot of them maybe are only done once, like getting the agent is done once. That's not something you do 15 minutes every day. That's a, that's a one-time thing. And so I wanted to talk to you about this because I think we are really in sync on this level of what a lot of our work in learning and note-taking and organizing is about is how do you tackle really complicated projects that don't have just a simple, you know, you just show up every day. You have to deal with the fact that there's tons of information out there. There's lots of people you have to contact. There's many little individual steps. What do you think about that? I'm, I'm sort of putting a lot on you there, but I'm sure you have some opinions having seen this kind of advice floating around. No, completely, completely. I'm also a huge fan of James. He's helped me a lot too on my on my yeah. book writing journey. But I think it's like that quote, the opposite of every great truth is also a great truth. <laughs> Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like truths are not these single point absolutes. Usually mm-hmm. when someone says a truth, it is on a spectrum. And both of the ends of the spectrum of that spectrum are, are true or have value, but also points in between. So I think, you know, let's take habits, for example. Habits are, I mean, of course, insanely important, insanely valuable, crucial to your health, your finances, your relationships, all these things. But not everything is a habit by a long shot, right? Yeah. I kind of compare it to marathons versus sprints. Some things are marathons. It's all about staying in the race, consistent progress, right? Like your, your absolute speed at any given point in the marathon is not so important as long as you're moving forward. As long as you don't collapse on the side of the road, you're running the marathon. But sprints are sprints are really what I'm interested in. Like mm-hmm. when I look back on my life, yes, habits were important, but there were these moments in my career and in my business where there was an opportunity, right? There was a window of opportunity. Something arose and I had to generate. I had to sprint. I had to generate a tremendous amount of momentum 
in a short amount of time to take advantage of that opportunity. And that wasn't a matter of habits. It wasn't a matter of routines. It was a matter of, of having, it was a matter of having the research in place mm-hmm. even before I knew how I was going to use it. Yeah. Right. So like, that's what a second brain is. It is, I'm a writer too. That's my main creative medium. I'm constantly doing research. By the time I decide to start writing something, it's way too late to do research, right? <laughs> like if I'm going to write an article on, on X topic, I can't start reading books on that topic or else it's going to take weeks and months. So in a weird way, I have to always be doing research and saving little nuggets in my second brain. So when that opportunity presents itself, I've already done all the research. All I have to do is pull it together. So I'd say it's kind of like marathons versus sprints. You really need both. So one idea, and this is also something related to it, is a lot of people think about notes in terms of expanding their memory. So this is something that like, you know, you have your internal memory and you have your external memory and you use that to go locate things that you can't remember. But one of the ideas that you bring up, which I think is true, I notice in my own work, is that notes are also a tool for thinking. That it's the having notes next to each other that you notice relationships that you couldn't necessarily notice in your head. And I mean, I think both of us would probably agree that you kind of only figure out what you think about something until you've written a lot about it. Like it's just through the act of writing, of sort of permuting through all the possible ideas that you're going through. You're like, oh, no, 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 this is actually what I think about this. I couldn't just figure that out in my head. So tell me a little bit about how you use note taking, not just to save things, but also to think about things. Yeah, I think memory, extending your memory is like the first stage. Mm-hmm. It's like the gateway. It's the stepping stone. Um, and actually in the book, I have kind of these three stages that I see people move through in kind of the maturity of their second brain. Uh, remember, connect, and create. So mm-hmm. remember has to come first because until you free up some space, right? That, that has to be the first step. I don't know about you. I don't exactly have like tons of just free bandwidth laying around. Like my bandwidth tends to be filled more or less. And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like when you're going to reorganize your house, you have to like move some things out first, move them into the living room or into the garage or into outside or to the storage space. You have to create some space to work in. Uh, and so that's why, you know, I, I describe a second brain in the first place as an extension of your memory, just offload, get the 20 or 30 or 40 or 50% of stuff that is, it's just, you have to remember, just memorize, doesn't really add value. It's just kind of sitting there and offloaded into an external storage system. Uh, But then as you alluded to, once you do that, things start to happen, right? It's kind of like that saying more is different, but in this case, it's less is different. (laughs) Less is different. When you free up that bandwidth, suddenly you have some room to think right? You have some space to wonder and to wander and to ideate. And when you look at these externalized ideas, you know, the stuff that you've just offloaded from your, your own mind, you move into the second phase, which is connect. And you start to draw little connections. Oh, this is related to this. You know, I, I'm doing some gardening and having some insights about gardening that also apply to how to, you know, use organic marketing for my business. Like these really unorthodox unexpected connections. Um, And once you've had some of those, and you can literally create those connections, like links in between your notes, you move to the third phase, which is create. You know, once you have a critical mass of connections between ideas and they exist in an external place, I find people almost can't help but want to create theories 
or create stories or create presentations or pieces of writing or new products or side gigs. There's, there's this fundamental human creative nature that I think we have, even among people who insist that they're not creative or their work is not creative, et cetera, which I don't believe and I disagree with. Um, that creativity just rises to the surface once you have all these building blocks you know, in front of you. So I want to uh, nerd out a little bit here with you. I I know, I think you have David Allen. He has a little blurb on the top of your book. So I, I know you have some, you know, personal relationship with with getting things done. If if the people listening to me right now have never heard of David Allen's Getting Things Done, then they should definitely also read that book. That is like the classic book that I think all of us uh, productivity writers go through at some point where you're like, oh, wow, this person really is got a system. And so I know getting things done has obviously had some influence on your work. And I know also it's a little bit less well-known, but definitely in the note-taking community, it's it's not unknown, are Zettelkasten systems. And they also have a similar role. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit because obviously your approach kind of draws on sort of these two, let's call them traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think are sort of the the overlap, the, the differences between how you think about it and how they think about it? I mean, I'm not here to cause internecine fights between you and uh, other people, but just to sort of reflect on where you see your approach and your philosophy fitting in with some of these other systems that are out there. Yeah, I think it's it's very closely related. It's super closely related. You know, this is something I emphasize in the book is the history. I'm really a fan Mm -hmm. of history. I think to understand the present and the future, you have to understand the past. Uh, And part of a second brain, by the way, is tracking your sources, tracking the lineage (laughs) of your ideas. But GTD had an enormous influence on me. That's really how I started my career was teaching GTD. I was sort of an unauthorized, you know, unauthorized (laughs) provider of of GTD training. Um, And what David Allen did, in my view, was simply create a process by which a particular kind of information, which was actionable information, to-dos, tasks, Mm -hmm. could be turned from these vague, what he calls open loops, right? These Mm -hmm. vague worries, anxieties in your mind lurking in the back of your consciousness into clear, actionable, Mm -hmm. concrete to-dos in a system that you trusted to surface them, to track them, and to finish them. Um, that's what GTD did. And I, I so appreciate that he spent decades, you know, really exploring mm-hmm. the implications of that and boiling it down to the, its absolute simplicity. Um, I hope I have the, you know, the longevity to do something similar. <laughs> but when I set out to start teaching, building a second brain, it was really to do that same thing for all the other kinds of information. Yeah. All the non-actionable information, the notes, the reference, the lists, the quotes, the research, the highlights, everything else, right? There's only two kinds of information, actionable and non-actionable. That pretty much covers everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's the relationship with GTD, uh, which is super compatible. And then Zettelkasten is even more related. I mean, that's that's almost the modern kind of inspiration for the revival of this whole idea uh, which was used by this German sociologist, Nicholas Luhmann, in the 20th century, mid-20th century. He used it to write articles uh, and books and papers, and he used index cards on paper. I think one big difference that I'm making is really making the leap and committing to digital, right? Like many of the principles I teach can be applied to paper, yeah. but I think it's, at some point, I think recently we've crossed a threshold where our devices are so ubiquitous the software is strong enough and powerful enough and easy to use enough. Connectivity is almost universal that I'm now comfortable saying, you know what? 
paper is fine for some purposes, but what I'm teaching, like my recommendation is to go all in on digital. Um, I'd say that's the, the primary difference. So, so this is a good, uh, good point to ask my uh, follow-up question, which is that I remember reading the book and noting that, you know, it's very difficult to talk tools in a book that you hope is going to be around 20 years from now, because then you end up recommending something that like you go to the website and you get like a, you know, 504 yeah. gateway error or something. And it's like, oh, I went all in and I've made that mistake. I, I remember in my early days of writing. I recommended a to-do list software, which was literally just to-do list. Like it didn't have any other features. And I put it in there. It's like, well, I just use this one, right? Like it's, it's just as good as any. And then I'm getting emails later. People are like, oh yeah, that software doesn't exist anymore. And it's, but it's, it's a very simple thing. Like there's a million to-do list softwares, but you end up committing to something that the developers don't support or something gets better after. However, we're having a podcast right now. We're in the ephemeral media that is the internet. And so anyone who's listening to this and, and we're now aged and don't look as youthful as we do on this video or sound as youthful if you're listening to us, you can trust that, okay, go to Tiago's website and he'll have some update in 2042 or whatever we are uh, listening to this if, if this podcast is still around. What do you recommend? What do you use for tools? What What's the tech stack that you recommend people get started with? Are there pros and cons? Are there criteria you use to evaluate these decisions of like, this is really important. People get tricked by these bells and whistles, but they're not so important. I want to hear. Yeah, this was really, uh, this was really one of the central challenges of the book. I mean, to the point that it was almost difficult getting a publishing deal because, you know, <laughs> publishers are like, okay, we, we work on, you know, five to 10 year time spans at least. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to write a book on software. Like why not just like publish mm. a PDF? Why not just like yeah. put this on your blog? <laughs> yeah. And I, and I tried and I strongly considered that, but um, I think what convinced me to ultimately go forward with it is there are some timeless principles. There are some concepts that stand the test of time. Uh, and so, I mean, my, my straightforward solution to that was simply every time it got to the point to recommend a specific product, mm -hmm. uh, I just stopped and I said, check out the second brain resource guide, which mm -hmm. is now live actually just as of this week. So you can put it in the show notes. So where, um, do, where do people go if they're listening to this and they're driving their car and they want to pull up their phone? No, no, don't do that. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to send you the link. I don't know sure. the URL offhand. I should probably oh, okay, okay. that, but I'll send right, you right, the right. The link to it, it's just a page on the buildingasecondbrain.com website. Which okay, buildingasecondbrain.com, they can go there and there'll be a link to it. Exactly. To exactly. Yeah. So it's a completely free public resource mm -hmm. uh, and also linked to many places throughout the book. Uh, and all it is, is just a step-by-step -step process of determining what is your note-taking style. First of all, like I actually joke that you don't choose a note-taking app, a note-taking app chooses you because it's so personal. It's so related to your temperament, your personality, yeah. your goals, the, the way that you naturally think about information. So we have four archetypes, uh, including a video that kind of describes what each one is. Um, and then I introduce you to some of the different categories of second brain apps, because it's not just note-taking apps. There's web clippers, there's audio or video transcription apps, there's PDF readers, there's ebook readers, there's probably a dozen different kinds. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at the end, we have a comprehensive directory uh, naming specific products with the links to their websites, the operating systems that they function uh, on, the uh, the type of second brain app that it is. And we're committing to updating that essentially indefinitely to just to keep, keep it kind of relevant and, and timely for people. 
Okay, that's very cool. I'm definitely after this going to check out and figure out what my it's this is like a personality test now. I get just like one of those what kind of note taker are you? You should do these like 15 minute, you know, the Facebook quizzes that'll what totally. kind of note taker are you? Yeah, yeah. Totally. Oh, I like that. I like that. Um so one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this book, especially in light of what we're talking about, about this being sort of for creative work and ideas and, you know, learning, not necessarily tasks, not necessarily the kind of, you know, busy executive stereotype that I think getting things done sometimes falls into, um, is the idea of organizing notes in terms of the action situations that they might be required. So you talk about this um, para system mm -hmm. uh, in terms of organizing things for action. And I think this goes back to my original problem that I talked about in this sort of opening. You get all these notes and then you're like, oh, I got to go through them. How do you organize your notes so that they become actionable, so that they come up for you at the right time, so that they're, they're sort of set up in your ecosystem so that when you need to know something, you, you encounter it again? Yeah, totally. I, I think that's that's kind of the uh, the driving principle of much of what I teach is, you know, there's a lot of reasons to take notes. There's some reasons that are more appreciative, like, you know, there's a joy, an inherent joy in thinking for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think just what I'm most interested in or what I care about or what makes the biggest difference to people's lives, I think, and their careers and their businesses is completed creative projects. To me, that is the that is the unit of progress that is most relevant in today's modern world is a completed project, not something you're working on, not something you're thinking about, not something you're collecting mm -hmm. research on. But like when you can point to a specific result, a specific outcome that is done, it's finished, it's delivered, it's shipped. There is an end point, right? That means you get to, first of all, step away. You get to offload something from your, you know, your, your, your workload, but also that's where the reputation comes from. That's where you build connections. That's where you, you know, you prove, you know, what you're talking about. That's where you create impact for others. And mm -hmm. it's like modern knowledge work. It often doesn't come to conclusions. Everything is every version of the website is just the next version, right? Yeah. Every version of the document, every version of the memo, every version, everything is just kind of ongoing, ongoing, ongoing that I think we have to actually put some intention to having things finish, having things come to conclusions. And so PARA is my framework for organizing. It stands for the four categories of information that encompass everything you might ever want to keep, which are projects, areas, resources, and archives. But they come in a certain order, in order of priority. The first one, as you noted, is projects, which is the first class citizen, the, the top of the, the hierarchy. Uh, and all it means is to just, I mean, it, it really couldn't be simpler. It's just to just identify your current active projects, which that step alone, we do this in my course. I lead people live through the process of doing that. Just that alone is so clarifying, right? Like if you ask the average person, what are the currently active projects? They can't really tell you. They have a vague idea. Some of them, others are very unclear. And it's yeah. just making a list. This is what I'm committed to. This is what I've... I've decided is is going to happen. Uh, and then once you've done that, you've done 90% of the work of setting up Para, which is to just create a notebook or folder or tag or whatever, you know, scheme your note-taking app uses for each one of your active projects. When you create a container for something, you start to see more of the things that could go in there, right? It's like having a placeholder. So when you create these, you know, empty notebooks or folders, suddenly you, you realize 
everything you touch that's related to your projects, which is most things, can just with one second, with one motion, be put right into the corresponding notebook. Which means the next time you work on that project, you just go right to that notebook and you have everything related to it in one place. So I want to uh, I want to end on a, a kind of a personal story. I, I really liked the discussion of your father because he was a, an artist or is an artist and um, has had an influence on how you think about creative work, which I mean, my parents aren't artists. I mean, a lot of people here probably don't have artistic parents, but how did that influence your thinking about not only the creative process, but how creative work actually happens and how it actually gets done as opposed to maybe the mythos that surrounds it? Yeah, it had such a profound impact. Growing up, it was like it was like living in two worlds because, you know, he'd paint these beautiful, imaginative, uh, colorful paintings. And everyone who saw them, you know, they came over to the house or they saw the website or they'd see his art in a gallery. They had this, I could just tell they had this image of him that was like the classic artist. And they saw him as this just like, you know, mystical, spontaneous, completely structureless, you know, imaginative person, which he is. But I saw what happened behind the scenes. I saw the other side of that equation, which is my dad was and is so structured. He's so systematic. Everything functions according to a principle. Every time he approaches a painting, he is he is approaching it from a very systematic way. Uh, and that is what allowed him to be prolific, right? To not get bogged down for weeks and months on one painting. It allowed him to earn a living from his art, which is an enormous accomplishment in any field, right? Yeah. Uh, and third, allowed him to raise four kids in, Cal in Southern California, which is like an even difficult, more difficult <laughs> accomplishment. Um, and I think that's what so many, whether they call themselves artists or creatives or writers or just knowledge workers are missing today. They have a gift. They have some talent. They have some good ideas. They have opportunities. They have all the pieces of the puzzle, but they're just missing that systematic process, and mostly because they just didn't have a model. Most of our models come from movies or films, right? Where it's that classic, just free form, just no, no principles, no structure, no process. And I just think that's not realistic. No, I love that. I love that. And I think that really reflects a lot of my ideas about creativity that I think you know, we, we romanticize the insight and often not the persistence and effort and, and indeed what you talk about, the systematicity of it. So I want to thank you for chatting with me and helping me with some of my own note-taking issues. I really recommend everyone who's listening to this right now to check out uh, Tiago Forte's book. I think if you liked ultra learning or even if you hated ultra learning, um, it, they're, they're very similar books in a way that they, I think they work well together because I often talk about learning and what's going on in your head and Tiago Forte is often talking about what's going on on uh, paper or computer to sort of complement that. And I think they're both really important parts of the puzzle. So I want to turn it to you. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? Is there anywhere that you'd like to send people, direct them if they're listening to this? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And, and I, would, I would echo that, you know, note-taking is a great complement to any personal growth personal development or self-improvement, you know, pursuit, whatever you're learning, whatever that is using all the techniques that Scott talks about in his book, it's just a place to document it. It's just your, it's your, your journal, your log, you know, the, the companion to your, your personal learning. 
Uh, so I encourage you to check out, you know, buildingasecondbrain.com. There you'll find links to all of our free content, to the book, to the course. It's really the central hub. Um, and yeah, just thanks for, for having me on, Scott. Oh yeah, it was great chatting with you. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.